Welcome to The Forest Garden, a podcast for gardeners who want to upgrade their landscapes into biodiverse food forest systems. On today's episode of The Forest Garden, we have the pleasure of hosting Aaron Parker of the Mountjoy Community Orchard Project. If food forests in public spaces sounds like something that you can really get behind, today's episode is a must listen. Tune in to learn about how the project got started, how it's evolved, what strategies for community engagement were utilized, what species of trees are planted throughout the orchard, what management patterns have been implemented, and much, much more. Stick with us. Hey there, everyone. So as I've already said, today we're really lucky to have Aaron on the podcast with us. Aaron is a total plant nerd who is based up in Portland area, which is where the orchard is that we'll be talking about today. He also is the host of a podcast called Propaganda by the Seed, which I suggest you all check out. He's also very involved in the community, which we'll be diving into today. So yeah, let's just get to it. Great. So thanks for having me. My name is Aaron Parker. I live in in Wabanaki territory, so-called Southern Maine. I live right outside of Portland, and we'll be talking a lot about Mount Joy Orchard that is actually in Portland. And I've just always been fascinated with nature and plants. When I was a real little, I was super into birds. And now my my like main focus of my life is working with plants. I got into the more like perennial ag, regenerative ag, permaculture focused area, probably about 20 years ago, almost when I picked up Edible Forest Gardens by Dave Jackie and Eric Tonesmeyer. A lot of the sort of practices and some of the plants that are part of that style of agriculture is stuff that I was already doing, but Edible Forest Gardens really kind of blew my mind as this really comprehensive look at a system of gardening and really sent me sent me down uh, the path that I'm on now. So for almost 20 years, I did landscaping for money and was really focused on edible landscapes and kitchen gardens and that sort of stuff. From that, I started growing nursery stock uh, which is how I came to my my current business, Edgewood Nursery, where I focus on mainly unusual perennial edibles and medicinal plants and pollinator support plants and local ecotype natives. And to kind of shift focus a little bit from me to my main volunteer project, which is Mount Joy Orchard. Mount Joy Orchard is in a public park in Portland, Maine. It is a free-to-pick public orchard that consists of over 100 fruit trees, over 20 species of edible woody plants, about 50 species of herbaceous plants, and those numbers go up pretty much every year. We're always trying to like plant something new, try something new add to the um, herbaceous layer and all that stuff. That project started kind of with with a guy named Jeff Tarling, who is the city arborist of Portland. 
the space that the orchard occupies now was basically a lawn for several decades. It's a very slopey site, so people weren't really using that space much. And Jeff was like, we are wasting our time mowing this hillside all the time. Let's turn it into a meadow. So the city stopped mowing it all the time, just mowed it once a year. Um, a lot of plants like milkweed and little blue stem grass were sort of reintroduced. There's a school at the top of the hill. So they had you know the school kids out there throwing milkweed seeds in the wind and reseeding them that way. And then about eight years ago, Jeff was instrumental in planting about a dozen fruit trees in this big empty field. And the city didn't really have people who were available to manage an orchard. So they started looking for community partners. And my friend Kristen Sheehy decided that she would take on organizing some, some folks to kind of care for these dozen apple trees that were kind of lost in shoulder high grass in this park in Portland. And she kind of figured we would like do a little sheet mulching around each tree, maybe plant some comfrey, you know, basically bare, bare minimum. When we got together for the first time to take a look at the site, uh, we were just blown away by the, the natural beauty of, of the spot. We met at like five o'clock on some like September evening and that spot gets really beautiful sunsets. So we're like up on top of this hill, looking out over the city, the setting sun. And we're like, wow, this is such a cool site. We shouldn't do the bare minimum. We should really go for it. So basically once a month, sometimes twice a month through the growing season of the past eight years, between two and 30 people have met up at that site to plant and maintain this community orchard. And it's grown from, you know, about a dozen trees to over a hundred trees now and participation kind of ebbs and flows. Sometimes we have tons of people and we get a ton done. And sometimes we have like two or three people, but it always seems like there's enough people, there's enough material resources to, to keep the place looking awesome. And it's, it's really been amazing to see this go from, you know, a few species of grass and a few species of forbs to, you know, hundreds of, of species of plants and the diversity of insects and birds and all that stuff has really grown really noticeably since we started planting and amending soil there. So it's been a really neat project. It's really, really interesting to me how, I mean, in my head, I had imagined that the way that this project started was from a lot of plant nerds coming together and sort of like pressuring the city to create a space like this. But I did not expect at all that it would be, you know, this one arborist to sort of uh, or the city, you know, is it's the opposite, apparently, that it was, uh, you know, that the sort of the city looking to create this landscape and then finding the people to kind of like fill it in. Yeah, it's it's kind of bizarre because I have friends who used to live on Montjoy Hill where where Mount Joy Orchard is located and they wanted to start a, a community orchard like five or 10 years before Mount Joy got rolling and the city said no. So it's, you know, it was, it was kind of, you know, right time, right place. And there was a, a new mayor at the time that it was planted, who was really focused on, you know, working on the local food system. And that kind of helps grease the wheels of, of city government and having 
having kind of someone on the inside of of the city government has has been extremely helpful because Mount Joy is run, you know, by this very grassroots group of organizers extremely informally, but the city really is they're kind of like the landowner and to have someone who we can pitch ideas to who is going to sort of advocate from within city government for for those projects uh, has been super helpful. So the city doesn't do a whole lot for Mount Joy. It's kind of done by the community. They'll certainly drop off wood chips and stuff like that occasionally, which is very nice. But having like a yes man in city government who's like, oh, yeah, that sounds like a good project. You should just do it <laughs> um, is is an awesome situation to have. And I know lots of people who want to do similar projects kind of get hung up in in the bureaucracy of city government sometimes and that can be a real bummer. No, that sounds absolutely ideal. So one thing that I noticed about, and also like I'm going back to my assumptions of when I first came there. So, you know, I'm walking up this beautiful hill and then at the top of the hill, there's a community garden and there's also a school. So in my head, I thought, okay, so there was this community garden here that got people interested in food and cultivating in their own backyards. And the city was like, oh, we have, you know, one community garden, maybe we'll make a second and then, oh, community orchard, that doesn't sound so crazy. And also maybe the space can be something that can be used as an educational landscape for the school, which is literally right across the street. Do you think that that factored in at all? Or do you think it was something else entirely? I I think it probably was a factor. The oldest trees that are sort of adjacent to the orchard were actually planted by a school teacher. And we kind of helped to maintain, maintain those fruit trees because as, you know, as the orchard group, we have people like myself with specialized skills to know how to prune and care for fruit trees that not everybody has. But those oldest trees are like kind of reserved for the use of, of the school because they'll take the kids out to pick apples and make applesauce and stuff. Um, so that did kind of set a bit of a precedent of like, uh, okay, fruit trees on, on city managed land, that's like not necessarily a problem. There is like a really dramatic cultural difference between the community gardens and Mount Joy, though, which is, I, I think, quite interesting because the community gardens are, you know, these fairly small plots that belong to a specific individual. And a lot of the community gardeners are very, you know, protective of like their personal space, uh, which is a pretty sharp contrast to the orchard that is very much like anybody walking by can pick whatever they want. We encourage people to not, you know, take all of anything, which has never seemed to be a problem, but it's just kind of like a free for all. And anybody who wants to and has time can come help maintain it. And then it's kind of just there for the community. Whereas the community garden is like, you know, even, even like physically the community garden is like surrounded by a fence and each little plot has its own little divisions and the the orchard is, you know, unfenced, just open to the public. People walk through. There's a like a path that goes along the edge of it where people are always walking to just get around the city or for exercise or whatever. So in 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 some ways they're very similar. There's, you know, urban agriculture. And in some ways they're you know dramatically different models. Maybe that's something that we should sort of touch on just for listeners who have never been to Mount Joy. I'll just sort of relay my own experience of stumbling upon this this orchard landscape. So 
Portland is a very walkable city where there's, I mean, if you're someone who drinks alcohol, there's breweries all over the place, which attract tourists. And there's the Eastern Promenade Park, which is this beautiful view over Casco Bay. And so frequently on a random Friday or Saturday, there'll be lots of young people walking around sort of brewery hopping and walking through very like well-designed pedestrian spines throughout the city that incorporate often some sort of green space, which I, I mean, really struck me as someone who's studying landscape architecture as just this, this incredible, amazing opportunity for people to learn about, you know, green environments in urban landscapes, et cetera. But that sort of path that you described that goes along the orchard, it really is a connectivity kind of thing. Like people who are in that lower area sort of near the highway and want to walk up to the park, maybe they parked down below the hill because the parking down there is easier. At least, I mean, I've experienced that. I don't know if that's really a thing. And then want to walk up to a different area of Portland. The chances that they're going to choose to walk through Mount Joy at least to me, seems pretty probable. And I, I think that, you know, the, the placement of it and the landscape and the surrounding landscape experience is really, really, really important. You know, like where your community orchard goes in an urban context, it just seems perfectly placed. Yeah. And I think a, a big part of the success of Mount Joy and, you know, I've been working on this project for eight years and I have never heard anybody say anything bad about the orchard. And I think a big part of the success of it is that it was a very disused space. It's a place that a lot of people walk through or by, but it wasn't a space that was being actively used by any people. And I've seen other similar projects fail because they were attempted to put into spaces that were being used and the people who were using that space didn't particularly want a forest garden there. So being able to use a space that was, you know, under underappreciated and not really used by anybody and turn it into something that is useful and looks nice and adds something interesting to the landscape without taking away from anybody is, I think, an, an important aspect of, of trying to cite a project like this. And Aaron, when, if, if anyone's listening out there who might, might want to replicate the, the Mount Joy experience and the Mount Joy site, are there any kind of pearls of wisdom or mistakes to avoid or things maybe you would do differently or things that maybe that were really important and vital to do that you could, you could share? Yeah, absolutely. So one of our primary goals of the project uh, at Mount Joy is, is to be a model of, of urban agriculture that can be replicated. And there's actually many, I mean, not many, there are several, let's say, public orchards that have gone in other neighborhoods in Portland or in surrounding towns that, that have been sort of directly inspired by, by the success of Mount Joy. So that, that thing I already said about like you using a disused space is I think worth worth considering. I think when when installing a, a public food forest or a public anything, trying to get as much input as possible from the community and you know finding out what people want, which isn't isn't always easy and is something that Mount Joy has struggled with a 
bit, mostly in that like what's growing there is a, a lot a reflection of what I thought should be growing there because a lot of the plants, you know, are coming out of my nursery, coming out of my garden or, you know, something like, oh, I, I think we should plant this. I think what what is missing and we're something we're working on remedying is plants that are familiar and specific to some of the immigrant communities that live, you know, in that part of Portland, because we, we don't have great participation from those communities, possibly because the plants that they are familiar with, the plants that might draw in a more diverse crowd aren't there. So we're, we're definitely looking at trying to tailor some spaces a little bit more to help, help bring those, those folks in and help them feel welcomed and at home in the space. So, you know, doing outreach to the community, figuring out what plants would be really exciting to people is going to be a big part of it. The other really big thing that I think is a big stumbling block is long-term maintenance. It's not that hard to organize and get some funds or materials donated to install something like this, but having people who are dedicated and people who have the, the skills required to maintain the spaces over the long term is, you know, as kind of essential to, to the success of the project. A lot of especially like fruit trees and stuff can take five to 10 years to even start producing and have a productive life of, you know, over a hundred years. My neighbor has a, an apple tree that's over 250 years old and still produces fruit. So to have some sort of human infrastructure in place of like, okay, these are the people that are going to be, you know, bottom lining the maintenance of this space before you even think about like what to plant or where to plant it is, I, I think, quite important. So Mount Joy's model for that is there's a, a core group of people who kind of make the decisions and, you know, set the dates for work parties and stuff. And then we have a much wider group of volunteers who show up to actually do do the labor it's uh, it's a standalone organization that only does this one thing and that has worked well for us but that's not necessarily the right model it's a model that works great for us but might not work somewhere else i think often tapping into existing organizations can be really useful so if you've got you know a permaculture club or whatever that can be the sort of infrastructure backbone for a project that can be great. Even organizations like Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts, um, I've seen really take on a very important role in similar community agriculture projects where, you know, that's, that's a labor pool that is fairly consistent and can do that sort of community work and allow hold hold the space for the larger community to come and go while making sure that the the sort of bottom line work always gets done it takes a village it certainly does i think that what you said about i mean 
there ever since i saw mount joy there only a quarter of a mile from where i grew up there's a similar slope that is a just space that's just mowed the town does uh, i'm impressed by the fact that they mow pieces of it at a time so there's always a patch of meadow open which is pretty nice. cool but it's just calling for some chestnuts to be planted there or something. But the problem is that, you know, there, there really isn't a community of people around to, uh, to manage that space. And, you know, it, in terms of how that space evolves over time, I mean, you know, if it's just a mode, if, if it's just the, the city mowing around it, perhaps, and they continue to mow, but there's alleys and just rows of trees maybe that could work i don't know i've frequently thought about how you know that space could be replicated i'm amazed to think that you know what you're saying is there's essentially no budget the city doesn't do really anything except drop off wood chips or provide sort of the uh like oh that sounds like a good idea and just everything is entirely done by this you know community endeavor is that basically the case yeah i would say over over the eight years like we we do take donations uh and we have gotten one grant so the the Mount Joy like organizing group i think we've spent about 600 bucks over over 8 years and we still have some money left over that we're going to use to make some multilingual signage the city did after many years of being like oh we're going to do this right way print up some signage which is great but they didn't want to do multilingual signage basically because they're like, oh, well, if we give you this sign with like six languages on it, then everybody's going to want that. And that does not sound like a problem to me, but we've got some fun. So we'll just make our own translations of, of our signage. But yeah, it's been done basically on a shoestring. And like the city maintains trees, so they have tons of chips and they have a budget that will allow them to give us some compost now and again due to a very specific quirk of taxation in the city of Portland. There is always money for trees. And that that quirk is whenever you build a new unit of housing, I don't remember if it's one or two trees, but you have to plant you know, a tree when you build a unit of housing. And if you don't plant a tree, you instead pay, you know, a couple hundred bucks into the city fund that can only be used for trees. So the city is always very like, oh yeah, you want like whatever trees, we we got your trees. <laughs> uh, but other than that, it's like, you know, volunteer labor and cardboard. It really is a uh, a project that you can do with, you know, almost no money or no money. It sounds like the building blocks of a civilization. So are you are you seeing people harvesting most of the fruits uh, that are being produced there or are people more interested in certain fruits, but maybe need more education? Great question. So yeah, the the project's still pretty young. So a lot of stuff is sort of just barely coming into production. The obviously like the more familiar stuff is the first to get harvested. So peaches never go to waste. They never hit the ground. People are all over that uh, because a tree ripened peach is like one of the nicest things in this world. And yeah, some of the less common stuff, cornus moss, quinces, takes a little bit longer, but I, th- I think there is pretty good 
interest in some of the more unusual plants at Mount Joy. And often if there's something that's real unusual, there might only be like two or three trees of it. So there's, you know, that that small group of really interested plant nerds who are going to go out and be sure to harvest that yellow horn nut or whatever. Beyond that, uh, we do have tours. I actually just did one today. We had an awesome volunteer you can find on Instagram under the name of Soy Milk Maid, who made a recipe card to give out at the uh, at the tour. So I think that's something we would love to continue to do. I'll also put like harvest alerts on, you know, on social media and on our email mailing list. So it's like, oh, you know, medlar really needs to get harvested in the next couple of weeks. So go to Mount Joy and pick some medlars and here's some, you know, something you might want to do with it. So as, you know, as more comes into production, there might be a need for more education, but I'm also finding that there are these little pockets of the community that are familiar with a lot of the plants that I think of as unusual and are excited to see them. And medlar is a great, a great example of that. There is a woman named Sandra who has been volunteering with Mount Joy for the last year. Super helpful. And I was shocked to find out from her that medlar is pretty common in Colombia, not where I would have expected to find, you know, a, a, cult, a cuisine of, of medlar, but she was very excited to have that medlar. I think there's probably lots of interesting connections like that to be had in, you know, a diverse multi-species food forest like Mount Joy. When you say Colombia, you mean like South America? Yeah. Wow. I, I mean, when I think of Medlar, I think of like, you know, monastery gardens and like Europe. And that's, that's really interesting. Me too. I had no idea. And an, another example is there's milkweed all over that site. And um, people are coming around to appreciating milkweed as food for monarchs and, you know, wonderful pollinator plant. There's also a bunch of other specialist insects that you only see if you have milkweed. But frequently I'll be at Mount Joy and see the cut stubs where people have harvested milkweed shoots or tips or flower buds. So there, there are people actively foraging, you know, some really neat plants, stuff that is not, uh, not commonly harvested. That's really, really cool. So, so that with that in mind, I actually, I have two questions and related to the foraging, something I've been meaning to ask a lot of community, uh, orchard projects in different States and municipalities or whatever have to get around foraging laws and how that sort of like functions or fits into this whole picture I'm interested in. And then also I, the other question I had was in terms of rodents or birds and like pests and diseases, it, I guess that even comes down to like species selection. I know that, you know, probably the diversity was the biggest push coming from a lot of a, a few plant nerds who really have diversity in mind. But yeah, like when you talked about the peaches, you know, I'm wondering how is it that, you know, the squirrels don't get them all or whatever. Cool. Uh, well, I can say I don't know anything about foraging laws 
and they were zero problem uh, for this project. So don't know anything about that. Um, pests and diseases I know about, and I think are going to be like learning to manage pests and diseases on that site with the amount of labor that we have available is going to be a really interesting challenge over the next like 20 to 30 years. We have, we're lucky to have a few different things working in our favor that kind of minimize our pest and disease pressure, but it does certainly doesn't bring it down to nothing. And some of those things are, we have excellent air drainage. It's a very slopey site. Uh, it's right by the ocean. So you get a really good maritime breeze. Uh, it's also in the city. So you have urban heat island effect, which is going to make this, the surface of the site dry out faster, which can help to keep fungal diseases down. There's also not a lot of other fruit trees around to act as reservoirs of pest and disease. So the pressure of most pests and diseases is significantly lower at Mount Joy than it is, say, at my house, like 20 minutes drive. That said, we already have some really annoying diseases. So we have brown rot, uh, which affects all prunus species. It's right now, I would say it's maybe affecting like 5% of the fruit, which is basically negligible. So we're doing really well. Right now, our strategy is just basically education, like encouraging people to go out and harvest those sour cherries that are ready now. And while you're harvesting them, please pick off the diseased ones and dispose of them in the commercial compost bin at the top of the hill. Because if if that brown rot, you know, goes to spore and sporulates all over the tree, then we're going to have a lot more brown rot than like 5%. Another one is peach leaf curl, which is, you know, kind of varies year to year how much there is. And we've managed to keep it at sort of like a cosmetic level. Like it, it doesn't look good, but it's not, you know, the trees are still okay and they're still producing fruit just fine. And we have a, a volunteer who has an applicator license and is able to spray liquid copper, which is kind of nasty stuff. But because we're only spraying it once a year, it's, you know, is what it is. And that can, you know, help help keep um, peach leaf curl in, you know, that doesn't get rid of it 100%, but it keeps it in check. Something that I think is going to happen over, like I said, the next 10 or 20 years is we're either going to work with the city to develop a spray program to, you know, try and use holistic sprays along the line of Michael Phillips to try and help manage pests and diseases probably would want to spray a lot of surround, which is a kaolin clay spray, or we're just going to go in and figure out which varieties are performing well with minimal maintenance and regraft anything that's not working. So if we've got a tree that's like year after year, not producing usable fruit, it's not very much work to like lop off all the limbs, regraft it with scion wood from another tree in the orchard that year after year is producing, you know, at least usable, if not clean fruit. One of our main things was to basically 
go real slow on planting apples because their pests and disease pressure is super high. And like you said, you know, design for diversity and try and plant lots of plants that have minimal pest and disease pressure. So mulberries, cornice moss, quince are usually pretty trouble-free. There's, you know, there's lots that you can plant that, um, you know, is get, has a much better chance. Pawpaws are another one, persimmon. Uh, all these plants, once they're established, don't require much in the way of, uh, you know, specialized maintenance. We're also helped by the site being really open. So if it was sort of in a tree-lined neighborhood, which is real common in, in Portland, but this happens to be a very exposed site, we probably would have a lot more squirrel pressure. Let me rephrase that. If we were in a tree-lined neighborhood, we'd probably have a lot of problems with squirrels, but because the site is so open, the squirrels have to travel a significant ways over open ground, which they would prefer not to do to, to get into the orchard. And that helps keep our, our uh, pressure from squirrels low. We do have a fair amount of voles. So we got to be really careful with putting tree guards on every fall before it snows. And we mostly take those off first thing in the spring, which is some labor and kind of annoying to store all the tree guards. But that is pretty effective at dealing with uh, the rodent issues. And no issues with groundhogs, I guess. No, surprisingly. There's a few food forests I've been to. Like there's one at Wesleyan right near where I live. And, you know, it's a maybe 10-year-old food forest. It's beautiful, but it is a groundhog haven. And it's like, I've never seen so many baby groundhogs in one place. Like usually like you'll see like one or two adult groundhogs, but stepping like, I'm like, oh, like check out the chestnut tree and then look down and just see five baby groundhogs scurrying away. And they've started to sort of affect the greater landscape around the food forest, which I imagine is an annoyance of the campus arborist or, you know, once you start seeing new groundhog holes at the base of now, like recently planted trees that are now dead because whatever groundhog decided to mess with the root system. That's something that I've always thought about as sort of like, a hmm, this is this is probably something that might not work in the favor of this food forest existing here over a long, long period of time. Yeah, um, interesting. Do you, th- do you think that that's also because of the just the distance factor from being away from the tree line? There is sort of a tree line. I mean, isn't it kind of up against sort of a woody woodland edge sort of thing on the right side? Or I shouldn't say. Yeah, right. there, there, there's a little bit. Yeah, there's kind of like a gorge or drop off area that has some more sizable trees uh, and used to be sort of a wooded path until that patch of woods got cut down and turned into condos. So that's not awesome, but yeah, there's not not much of a squirrel population there. Now, thinking about succession, you said you you read the Edible Forest Gardens, and that's sort of what one of the first books I read too. Um, and they talk a lot about the different layers, food forest and the forest garden. How would how do you envision Mount Joy looking in ten years, twenty years, fifty years down the road? I mean, do you do you think it will eventually have you know overstory canopy of some of the of the larger trees and then, you know, smaller trees and shrubs, or do you think for the sake of harvest and for just community access, you're going to try to keep them pruned to a manageable height and come up with sort of like a novel form of succession? 
yeah, I don't, I don't see Mount Joy ever having a, a real canopy layer or really filling in too much beyond what it is. And like you said, yeah, like making sure everything's pretty accessible for the community is, is a high priority for us. So that, that'll mean eventually topping all the trees. We've already started topping some of them, training branches low, because ideally we want the you know, vast majority of the fruit to be accessible from the ground or at most with, you know, like a short step ladder or a pole pruner or pole picker. So we're not going to let it get too, too huge are already starting to go back and work our way through some of the areas that we originally uh, sheet mulched, you know, eight years ago now and do some spot sheet mulching where turf grasses have really crept in. So we're, we're already sort of resetting that succession clock in some places by making, you know, targeted disturbances. Great. Yeah. I think that's a important consideration too. I mean, it's nice to think about all the layers of the forest garden, but in this situation where you really want it to be inviting and to bring people in and be easy to harvest and access safely, it's, you kind of have to find some balance between the uh, different layers and the different the different species that are in the, the forest garden, but also have it be practical. Absolutely. Yeah, there's there's definitely a balance to be had that, you know, respects the the desire and need for ecological diversity and habitat for all living things. And also, like, I'd like to be able to walk up to that tree and pick the fruit without, you know, wading th- through waist deep thistles or something. So I have kind of an unusual question and I only say it's unusual because this was a question that never ever occurred to me until someone else asked me when I was proposing a sort of design proposal for a forest garden, which was, do you ever, did you have any sort of thoughts about people abusing the landscape in terms of people coming in and just digging up entire rows of things and bringing them home to put in their own backyard? Or have there been any examples of this? Or is that just something that's so far out and crazy that that was never even considered? Which personally was my original thought, like who would do something like that? But several, like I've gotten pushback from several different institutions, basically being like, we don't want to promote the idea of people coming into our, you know, either private land or public land and and having this sort of foraging experience idea here, because then who knows, they could go dig up all the whatever um, ramps that are naturally growing in the little woodland edge area of our property, et cetera. So at, at the very beginning, it was something we were a little bit concerned about because there, there are, there were other fruit trees that were planted in other parts of the city that were just, you know, vandalized basically people breaking branches off for no apparent reason, but it has not been an issue at all. And we actually encourage people to, in specific situations, dig up some plants and bring them home because there's, you know, abundant comfrey. There's more tansy than we want. There are, you know, plenty of walking onions for you to take a couple home to your garden. And one of the long-term goals that hasn't really been implemented yet is to make Mount Joy into a plant library. The idea behind that is that basically every plant in in the uh, orchard can be relatively easily prop- 
propagated. So that might mean taking scion wood and grafting it, or taking a division or collecting seeds. And we really want to encourage that because not only do we want Mount Joy to be a model that can be replicated, but it can also be a source for propagation material for other other similar gardens and other projects and even backyard gardens. I personally have not seen any issues with people over harvesting anything or removing plants or damaging plants. I think the only sort of random damage that I've seen in in my eight years is people sled on that hill and ski and snowboard uh, in the winter. And there, <laughs> there was a small tree that was just completely smashed by someone sledding through it. Now all the trees are much too large for that to be an issue. But that seemed very much an accident. And I, have, I haven't seen anything malicious in a long time. Gotcha. So in terms of the community feedback, we've already talked about this you know, quite a bit, but has there been anything that anyone said that's really sort of caught you by surprise and or something really inspiring that never would have occurred to you, but you know, someone from a different community kind of you know, experienced this landscape and just had an entirely different new idea that either you know, maybe gets brought in down the line or doesn't? Um, I can't think of anything off the top of my head that was like, you know, sort of, you know, made me see something from a different perspective. But we, we generally get really good feedback. People are like, oh, I love this space. You know, I'm glad you're doing this. I appreciate this being here. Get a lot of people who are really excited to participate in the space. Often older people who, you know, used to have their own garden and now, you know, live in a small apartment or whatever. And, you know, are just excited to get their hands back in the soil. Or even young people, like last year, we had a, an awesome volunteer who was able to, you know, work totally independently, who grew up on a farm and just missed pulling weeds once in a while, uh, which is like the, you know, someone who is excited about weeding is basically the best kind of volunteer you could get. <laughs> this is true. What are the plants that are people that have gotten most excited about? What have been the standouts that other people can, in terms of if someone wants to replicate this landscape in their own community? Yeah, I, I just, I'm interested in what the, uh, the big ones have been. Yeah, I would say peaches are a big hit. There is a, actually, it, it's just a city landscape planting that's adjacent to Mount Joy. That's almost all high bush blueberries. Uh, that gets a huge amount of attention. People are really excited about pawpaws that aren't even fruiting yet. Like they're just stoked that they exist there. There's a, there are four apricots that are really cool and are the one that I'm personally most excited about. And I can tell you a, a little story about them if if you're interested but that's i know that's one that people are stoked yes on as please well. i'd like to hear the apricot story and what what variety is is it i'm not familiar with too many cold hardy apricots all right so that's that's all part of the story okay okay so apricots are actually really cold hardy a lot of them are hardy into zone four what apricots don't like and what kills them in the northeast is humidity it's really freaking humid here 
and apricots come from a much more arid climate. So they, I've never had an apricot die on me over the winter, but I've had several die in the summer. Like I, I barely even messing with apricots at this point, but I know of one apricot that was planted in the eighties in Portland and still like this big, beautiful tree loaded with fruit every year, even though no one's really caring for it. Uh, it's the largest apricot that I know of in Southern Maine. And I call it Munjoy apricot because it's on Munjoy Hill. And this tree was apparently planted as a seed by an immigrant to Portland who brought the seed with him from his home country. So really neat tree, really neat story. And maybe like 10 or 12 years ago, there was an article in a like local free paper about this neat apricot tree growing in Portland. And the journalist who wrote the article got really into the tree and ever since has been, you know, picking up the fruit off the sidewalk and saving the seeds and growing them out and um, giving them to local community agriculture programs. So at one of our work parties, this guy stops by and he's like, oh, I'm sorry, I can't stay and hang out, but I have these seeds for you. And he gives me these apricot seeds which I threw in my fridge. And, you know, a few months later, I was doing a volunteer thing at the school at, that's at the top of the hill at Mount Joy. And I was teaching the kindergartners about seeds and how they grow and, you know, how they're like so important for our food and all this stuff. And then every kid in the kindergarten class got to plant a little seed in a little pot and they grew them on the windowsill of their classroom. And then I came back in June on the, the last week of school and helped them plant all the plants that they grew into the orchard. So we have four of these apricots that are seedlings of that Munjoy apricot that are now fruiting size in the orchard. And those were planted and initially grown by kids that are now in, I guess it'd be fourth grade. Um, and still in that same school. So I really hope that those kids are getting out into the orchard and they now have a dedicated garden teacher at that school who I know takes the kids into the orchard on a regular basis. So hopefully the kids that planted those apricot trees are now getting to see, you know, this fruiting size tree that they got to uh, grow and care for. And that's like, like basically the, the coolest story around Mount Joy. Wow. Yeah, that's great. I love that story. I always love hearing about how tree genetics move around the world and who knows where that, that immigrant who planted that original seed came from. And uh, yeah, it's, it's great to know that apricots are an option for, for your area. I, I, I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, it's, it's not one that I would necessarily recommend because they're, they're so susceptible to diseases, but maybe this will uh, pan out and end up being a you know, a, a viable variety for the Northeast. Who knows? I was under the impression that they, like similar to growing almonds, that they flower pretty early so they can get zapped by a late frost. Is that, am I wrong in that assumption? Um, no, that's, that can be true. I have multiple times and I have pictures of this because it looked really cool, had apricots blooming and it snowed. But the the blooms are surprisingly hardy. So I've had a 
you know, apricot tree full of blooms covered in snow and still had it set a full crop. I don't think I've ever lost a crop of apricots to a late frost. Um, So that might, you know, might be a fluke. And it was like 33 degrees and snowing. And I just got lucky several times. Or it might be that they're not quite as sensitive as you might think. I really think their biggest thing is they're sensitive to humidity. But there is a woman who is doing a apricot trial in Maine. I'm blanking on her name right now, but I think that will be published in the uh, Mafka newsletter at some point. And she did include a grafted Munjoy apricot in, in that trial. So I look forward to seeing how it, how it stacks up on her site. So if somebody wants to replicate this in their own neighborhood, I think like we talked about already, one of the most important things is that like original starting point. So in terms of the input experience for community interest, what was the jumping off point? Like the the first dog days of of getting things off the ground? Was there sort of, you know, did you guys put out flyers? Was there any sort of like community outreach that happened via social media? If someone wanted to do this themselves, what would the attack plan be? Yeah. So for us, we had the the resource of the Resilience Hub to work with. The Resilience Hub started about 15 years ago as a meetup group called Portland, Maine Permaculture. By the time Mount Joy started, you know, had maybe like 2000 members of that group. So that was a really easy, you know, existing mailing list to pitch to, to say like, hey, we're having a work party to plant a community orchard. Everyone should come. Having that sort of initial planting event is a great way to rope people in it, it always helps to have, if you can like have a potluck or free food or, you know, something to help draw people in free workshops can be helpful too, just to get people to show up the, the first time. And then, you know, hopefully you can keep, keep those people coming back long-term, you know, if, if the community you're working in doesn't have an existing organization that's quite so obvious as like, oh, a permaculture group, they'd probably be interested in an orchard. There's probably something else, some sort of community service organization or a volunteering group or a garden club that you could pitch to as as an initial audience to kind of start the ball rolling with public outreach. No, that sounds really pretty ideal. I guess it was a real benefit to have sort of a pre-established network of people who are just, we're all really like-minded in the first place. So uh, th- my next question, uh, you talked a bit about grafting. Grafting is, is, you know, a bit of a skill or more than a bit of a skill, even though it's an ancient technique and it's, you know, sort of a skill that's been lost with the modern world. Less and less people know how to do it. It's become very specialized. I, I see this landscape as something that, you know, it's, it's an educational space where these workshops that can happen can really sort of teach people the ins and outs of some things that they otherwise might never have known. The free workshops sounds awesome. I'm interested in what workshops have been most successful and then also sort of focusing more on just the grafting side of things, exactly kind of like what your, you know, more plant nerd mind is in that regard if this if they're you know you're multi-grafting trees or you know you talked about if something doesn't work out you can chop it and and re-graft it with another plant that's really interesting just a little bit more uh, on that regard cool so 
our two most popular workshops that we offer every single year are fruit tree pruning. I would say that's our most popular one that usually happens in like late February. We usually get like 20 to 30 people to show up for a free pruning workshop that's it's that I, I teach. It's usually about an hour's worth of workshop and then an hour to, you know, stretching into three, if you're really into it, of pruning practice. And I think it's a really, really useful workshop uh, for the community because fruit tree pruning is a specialized skill. But to not only have a workshop where you learn the basics, but then to have, you know, a hundred trees for people to practice on. And we usually have not only me leading the workshop, but you know, two to four experienced pruners who are just kind of circulating. So people will usually break off after the workshop and work two or three people together on a tree and then, you know, make the obvious cuts. And then someone who knows what they're doing will be able to come around and say, you know, you good, you need help. And people always have questions or, and nine times out of 10, they're like, I was thinking about cutting this branch and the more experienced person will be like, yeah, great, cut it. That looks good. So that's, I think, a very useful way to learn to prune. The other really popular one is bark grafting. Grafting can be a bit tricky. There are some details to work out. But every year I teach this bark grafting workshop that's maybe 15 minutes long. And then there's usually several opportunities for people to try their hand at it. And I would say after only a 15-minute workshop, people are usually having you know, at least 75% success rates. And with a bark graft, you can put usually two to three grafts on a single branch. So you get three tries and 75% chance take. So it's, you know, most people get it uh, very successfully, even on the first try. And I'm jealous. I, I wish uh, I wish I lived in, in closer to you so I could come to all these workshops. Yeah, sorry. Or that's 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 part of what we're trying to do is like offer this model and in order to replicate the model you need skilled people and we like want you know we want other people to come to our workshops come to our work parties not only because we need the hands to do the labor of maintaining the orchard but so that we can share those specialized skills and have them you know like the plant material like the ideas of of the model have those specialized skills sort of, you know, filtering out into the wider community. And as far as grafting, my, my big push with people learning to graft is learn the bark graft. It's incredibly easy and start grafting on calorie pairs. Calorie pairs are like this wildly uh, prolific woody weed that is all over the Eastern part of the country. And they're in like every ditch in every city and they're kind of a, you know, they're a problem, but the silver lining is they'll accept a graft from Asian pear, European pear. There's an apple called winter banana that you can graft onto calorie pears. And then you can graft whatever apple you want onto that winter banana section. You can graft medlar on calorie pear. I haven't done it yet, but I'll bet Aronia would take. You might be able to do sorbus on a calorie pear rootstock. So there's all these amazing food plants 
that you can graft onto those woody weeds growing in a ditch and they grow incredibly. There's another similar project on the other side of town called the Harborview Edible Hillside. And we topped like 20 calorie pears that were growing in a ditch and grafted them all over to European and Asian pears. And they grew six feet in a single year and were fruiting in the second year. So this, you know, calorie pear that's all over the place, birds are planting it, you know, in any waste space in just about any city in the East. And we should make, make use of this like incredibly abundant resource. I've been like so stoked the whole time you were talking about that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm writing like, that down too. You, well, dude, you see them on the side of the highway in the spring and I'm just like every single one of those could be a Shinsuke Asian pear. Yeah. You know, like, and the, and I mean, we could talk about the smell, you know, they have a nickname that I won't mention on this podcast. <laughs> They, uh, they're not great, you know, whoever decided, whatever urban planner was like, oh, we can put all these calorie pears in the urban landscape. They're a great street tree. That guy really, oh man. But anyways, fantastic. I, I love it. There, there's an organization out West that in, in California that has been doing this on a, on a larger scale. I can't remember the name. It might just be like something. Generic. Gorilla grafters. Yes. Yeah. The gorilla grafters. Exactly. Yeah. Which is exciting, you know. This we're not the only people having these ideas of yeah, just absolutely cutting down your shitty calorie pair. Literally, like people. I mean, people are now coming to coming around to this is an, a fantastic rootstock. It'll grow anywhere, and yeah. the amount of food that can come out of it is just insane. Yeah, absolutely amazing. And I, I do want to mention some of the criticism that's out there of gorilla grafting especially when it comes to fruit trees. And I think if, you know, if you've got a street tree in front of your house, that's a calorie pair of any size planted or bird planted, and you want to regraft it, and you're going to be there to care for it, that's awesome. You should probably go for it. I don't necessarily support gorilla grafting anytime, anywhere, because it it could potentially like if there's no one there to prune it and there's no one there to pick the fruit basically wind up being a pain in someone else's ass. And, you know, if it's not your neighborhood, it's not a tree that you're going to be looking after, then, you know, just think, think twice about that. If it's a tree growing in a ditch that was planted by a bird, then you should always just make it something else. <laughs> it takes the village. Uh, ben, you well, Oh yeah, I'll also add that um, some people may know the calorie pear is the the Bradford pear, uh, a popular cultivar of calorie. Yeah, totally. And that's that's kind of where this problem came from was the difference between calorie pear and Bradford pear, with Bradford being a specific cultivar. The first plantings of calorie pear were all this one cultivar, and supposedly had pretty minimal fruit production because they weren't getting cross-pollinated. And then somewhere along the line, someone had a different calorie pair and they labeled it Bradford. And then it all just became a giant mess of cross-pollination. And now they're all over everything. On the side of the highway, as you drive up I-91 to visit Portland, Maine, to check out Montjoy Orchard in the spring, check them out. Ben, Before I have just one last question about, you know, involvement and what, you know, resources. Do you have any questions? I feel like I've talked most of the time. No, we've covered a lot. Aaron, thanks for 
for taking the time out to speak with us. Yeah, absolutely. And I will um, throw in some some plugs for Mount Joy stuff. Uh, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. I think our Instagram handle is mount, M-O-U-N-T dot joy dot orchard. We also have a website at M-T-J-O-Y orchard dot org. And something you'll find on that website, which is extremely simple, but at the bottom, there is a YouTube video that's about an hour long tour of me talking about the orchard and talking about a bunch of the plants in the orchard. So if you want to see what the orchard looks like, check out our social media or that that video. Um, and you can hear me talking about some of the interesting plants in the orchard as well. Aaron, if someone wants to get even more involved and they want to, you know, maybe visit Maine and check out some of the other resources that you guys have up there in the regenerative agriculture zone or some other resources, what, what are some of those uh, resources that people could find? Yeah, there's there's some interesting stuff happening in Maine. Um, so you can check out the Resilience Hub, find them on uh, social media, you can look at my business, Edgewood Nursery, um, which you can find on social media or at edgewoodnursery.com. Another really great learning opportunity is the Mafka Common Ground Fair. Um, which happens in late September every year. MOFCA is the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. It's the oldest and largest state-level organic organization in the country. And there is a uh, the fair that they run that has hundreds and hundreds of workshops. And you, know, you either volunteer for a four-hour shift to get in the door, which I highly recommend. It comes with a lovely meal and the whole the whole event runs on volunteer labor or you pay a few bucks but the the quality and diversity of the workshops offered at the fair is really really interesting there's tons of really cool stuff i do three workshops a day for the whole fair uh, there's some other like amazing teachers that you can learn from there people like jim kovaleski who developed uh, what he calls grass-fed vegetables. You can also find him on YouTube. Just really interesting regenerative system for growing annual vegetables. Yeah, there's just a million things happening there. Also just a really interesting place to meet like-minded people and learn you know, learn from your peers. I will see you there. Unity <laughs> <Camp>. <laughs> Yep. It's, it's a bit Maybe. of a hike. I mean, Unity is up there, but I-, I Yeah. Will. I will be there. Anyways, uh, Aaron, this has been absolutely incredible. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, to our listeners, once again, if you want to check out Aaron, or if you want to hear more of his voice, he also hosts a podcast or co-hosts a podcast with Soul, also known as Tim, called Propaganda by the Seed. I cannot recommend their podcast enough. So be sure to check them out on Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts. And yeah, thank Aaron. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me.